love. Some would say it took a backseat when the pandemic forced us apart. As a family-run and proudly Canadian-owned company, Charm Diamond Centres saw the need to bring us together with tales of love and created the Canadian Love Map podcast. Since then, we've shared hundreds of real, uplifting stories that prove love conquers all. So thank you for listening. We couldn't do it without you. And remember, love starts here. Finally, I'm connected with my culture. There, there was no world where I felt that any other person would make sense. We are just so comfortable. Our community is full of love and full of happiness. The dark times don't last forever and it's, it's worth coming through it for the light. Love is the core value of what will create change and empathy in people. We, we all have the ability to make a tremendous difference in the world. Compassion, wherever you introduce it, explodes in all directions and it hits everybody. I have the ability to write a compassionate song that makes people feel something, that makes them not watch the news maybe for the next five minutes and maybe go out and do something kind to somebody else. That's real power. That's a superpower. Hi, I'm Nancy Regan. In this first episode of season five, our love story belongs to Dave Carroll, a beloved singer, songwriter, speaker, and author. Dave's viral song, United Breaks Guitars, just about broke the internet back in 2009, becoming the number one music video on YouTube that year. It turned a messy airport situation into a customer service learning experience extraordinaire and planted the seeds for an international career in inspiring others. Dave is now spreading his message of self-acceptance and compassion to the younger generation with a brand new children's book, Tom the Tomato Plant. We'll talk about it all and much more in this episode. This is the Canadian Love Map. Okay, so this is the very opening of the book, Tom, the Tomato Plant. I say tomato. Maybe I you say, say I say tomato. Tomato. But his name is Tom. But. Tom couldn't remember a time when he wasn't a tomato, tomato plant. He knew that he probably hadn't always been one, but he just couldn't remember. I read those lines, Dave, and I thought, it's sort of like you. Was there ever a time when you weren't a spreader of love? Mm. Uh, yeah, I would say, yeah. Uh, I think things changed for me when I started playing guitar. So when I when I start when I found music, I started finding my voice, and I started thinking more contemplatively about what I am and how I want to project myself. And uh, that's probably where I started uh, thinking more about that kind of stuff. I see you in this well of music. How old were you? I started late. Um, in terms of like guitar, I picked it up in university, not even in my first year. So I was in my third year uh, and I uh, moved into residence and I had learned guitar the year before. I bought one for $125 and this is before the internet. So I had to teach myself how to play the chords and I found a book that had actual chords in it. So that made it big, big and easy for me. And I just uh, discovered certain songs on my own and then found a book that had the 150 greatest songs of all time from the 70s oh, and learned yeah. some of those. And and uh, yeah, I just found uh, singing with friends was uh, bringing people together. Don came uh, in my third year when I was at Carleton. Dave's brother. And 
we would sing for our friends, sing-alongs in residence till 11 o'clock. Then it got quiet and they'd kick us out and make us go to the tunnels at Carleton because it was connected by tunnels and, and it had this cavernous reverb. Everyone sounded fantastic in the tunnels. And someone said, you should enter a talent contest. And so Don and I entered a talent contest uh, with a bar that maybe held 100 people. And the 100 people were, I think they were all our friends and we only tied for first place. So that's how bad we were. Some of our friends voted against us. <laughs> oh, I love it. Okay, I couldn't help but think when you were picking up the guitar heading into university, if it was a way to pick up girls. And then it ended up being a much deeper <laughs> experience for you. Tell the truth, you're on the hot seat. It wasn't that way. Okay, it wasn't that way. Checking. But but I just told this story yesterday, and it's a true story, that, that, that I was say, staying on second Russell at Carleton University. That was my res room. There was a girl on 10th Glen that I was I was very interested in. Her name was Rebecca. She never noticed me. And I'm playing my first show and I'm the only one on stage and she's staring a hole right through me. And I actually turned around to see what she was looking at. And there's just a wall there. And I looked down at the guitar and I said, oh, my. Oh, that's it. <laughs> that is it. That's why I asked the question. Yeah. I remember having that same experience in university. Hilarious. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so of course your guitar played uh, an enormous role in you breaking out into worldwide fame, but we're gonna talk about that in a bit. I wanna talk about your very latest project, which seems to me to be a great example of how everything in life leads to what you're doing now. When you're really following a path, uh, an intentional path, and uh, as with yours, a path that's paved with love and compassion, it it just sort of keeps on opening up and everything that you've done has prepared you for this. Tell me about Tom the Tomato tomato Plant, sorry. So uh, as a songwriter, I played all over the place. I, I tell stories before my songs. I consider myself a storyteller and I'm a dad. So I, and I write about my life. I write about the people in my family and that's where I get a lot of the inspiration for my stories. And uh, our dad was driving our youngest son home from church one day and Fisher saw the, the tombstones in the cemetery and he says, what's that? And my dad just said, that's where you go, uh, where they put you when you die. And he probably something distracted him while he was driving and that's all he said about it. And so my son comes home that night and he's, he's like, I don't want to live in the dark under the snow for the rest of my life and when I die and all that. So I would tell stories for my kids before we'd go to bed. And uh, sometimes they'd give me material and I would just tell the stories and invariably they would say, dad, that story sucks, right? Yeah. But on this time, I, I told a story about the story arc of a life of a tomato plant named Tom. Mm -hmm. And at the end of it, he said, uh, dad, that's a pretty good story. And, <sighs> and so um, it was sort of inspired by uh, a need to, to give him a different version of what he imagined death was gonna be like. And it also served as a inspiration for me because I said, this is something that I could probably use in storytelling workshops and other things. And, and, um, and I had a friend named Paul Tefanello who is uh, uh, older than me, but he's a retired teacher and principal and a children's author. And he encouraged me, he said, I can help you do this. And he did, and he, he helped me uh, work through the process. So I wrote my first children's book. And it's, uh, my hunches seem to, to be right. If you got a gut feeling that says, this is, this is crazy for a singer songwriter to write a kid's book and think and it, try and integrate that, but it can be done, right? And no, so I it's followed not crazy it. at all. I think it's I think it's amazing. <clears throat> I, as I say, I think your your projects all have a sim, a similar theme. And tell me how this works all of that into one book. So I believe in uh, um, 
in the the talks that I do and just my outlook on life and how we how we are all interconnected. I fundamentally believe you and I are fundamentally connected with one another. And that means we have a fundamental responsibility to care for one another a little bit more. And the more I thought about it, I considered this uh, concept called compassionate design. The compassionate design is basically uh, takes almost the dictionary definition of compassion that it's the deep awareness of the suffering of another and the willingness to alleviate it. Mm-hmm. So it's only got two aspects. You have to be able to be aware and present and see suffering, and you have to be willing to do something about it. So it's a verb as I see it. And uh, so compassionate design is is an intentional process to just bring you into the present moment and get you to look for suffering and do something about it, take action. So the, the three pillars are called uh, the three L's, to love, look, and look again. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first is to love and respect yourself, because I think that's probably the biggest obstacle to anyone being successful is to actually uh, know that every time you enter a room, you're bringing something fresh that has never been there before, and you have the power to change lives and, and just respect that, not brag about it, but just accept it, that you have power. Yeah, it's your uh, contribution. Yeah, so you L is the uh, first one is love. So love and respect yourself. Uh, second is to look, and and that's basically to say, I'm not the only one with that superpower. Everyone else is. So look at other people the same way and say, yeah, you've got power and you've got this energy and you've got something unique, and I want to be curious about it so I can feed off it and learn from it, and uh, and it it shows instant respect to the other person. Mm-hmm. And then the third one is to look again, and it's sometimes the hardest thing. But if you love and respect yourself first, and you look for that in other people, uh, even people you don't even think you have a lot in common with, you do, because we're fundamentally connected. And that means if I look hard enough, I will always find an aspect of myself in you. And if I love and respect myself first, then we've got a great basis for a relationship. So that's what compassionate design is. So why don't you tell me the story of Tom, the tomato plant, a little bit? So Tom is, the story starts with him being a small little tomato plant, smaller than all the rest. He doesn't really know what he was before but he can't really remember. But he he knows he's in the back of a farmer's truck on the way to the market, and they put him on a table with all the other tomato plants, and they put a sign in front that say for sale, but he can't really read it. And he's at the back because he's smaller, and they give all the other ones the front row. And throughout the season, the farmer puts sometimes too much water on, sometimes not enough water on. And, and throughout uh, coming weeks, people were coming by and they always took the bigger plant and to the point that later in the season, he's the only one left on the table and his, his branches are hanging forward and his head's down and he knows he's probably never going to get picked until one day <laughs> a family come around and there's a little girl and her brother and her two parents and she persuades them to go and take an interest in Tom. She says, well, mommy, why is that tomato plant all by itself? And so in the story, I think it's important because she has no power. She's just a kid. And uh, she has no money, she can't buy it, but she persuaded the family to take an interest. And by doing that, she brought four people over there and they decided uh, that uh, they could give him a forever home and uh, they bring him home and give him all the things that he needs to be his best self. The, the bigger pot with fresh soil, perfect spot in the sun to reach and try and touch the sun knowing he'll never get it, but he can try. And he grows four great tomatoes for each of the f- uh, four family members. and. And the story continues from there, but it's it's a story about gratitude and seeing yourself and other people and getting the rewards of of doing something for somebody else selflessly and how that makes your life better. And uh, it's about compassion. Yeah, it's a, a message of social responsibility framed for children, which I think is invaluable. And it is 
you know, it, it is a story arc of the life of Tom. So spoiler alert, he doesn't make it. Oh, no. <laughs> but Tom. but uh, I didn't want this story to be about a, uh, the death because that's only the, the last little bit. It's mm -hmm. all the things that happen in the middle. And that's what life is really about. And so the estimation of the value of someone's life is in the middle parts, not in the necessarily the beginning of the end. Those parts can't be controlled, but the individual can can control at least how they perceive the world and how it reflects back at them. So that's what this is about. But I also love the fact that it's a message about the cycle. And there is, you know, life and death, and there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. Yeah. I think it's going to make a wonderful impression on kids. What's your ideal takeaway for a child to read this and then think blank? I would like kids to read the book and, and feel... Uh, a sense of responsibility to to look out for other people that might be less fortunate and to uh, help them. Do you consider yourself a storyteller above all else? I do. I think that storytelling is not just me, but we all are storytellers. And uh, it's a superpower that we have. <laughs> that if I try to boil a pot of water on a stove just by looking at it like a Marvel character, I can't do it. There's no There's no hope that you can do it. But I can pick up a phone and if I tell someone a story that I might not even know 10,000 miles away, I can actually change their physiology. I can manipulate their oxytocin and cortisol levels, which makes their eyes leak maybe, increases their heart rate. And I love that that's, that's a real thing. If there's, a, there's a scientist named Paul Zak. He did some research on cortisol and oxytocin and he had two groups, the control and the experimental group. And he brought the control group uh, into a theater. Everyone got paid $20 a stipend of some kind to watch a film and it was just data. And so nothing happened to the full levels as expected. The control group though, got brought into the same theater, same uh, everything else. They were wired for cortisol and oxytocin level uh, changes and they were shown a different film though. And it was a film of a man pushing a daughter and it's his voiceover and he's explaining that it's bittersweet because every time he pushes her, it's one less because she's got terminal cancer. And uh, you can imagine that as expected, the cortisol and oxytocin levels were, were off the charts. But what they didn't tell the people is that both groups were offered the chance to donate at a booth outside with their stipends. And the first group just walked past it and the second group came out and many of them gave the $20 as a compassion move to a charity that just happened to be there. So that means if you can tell a story to somebody that makes them feel something by manipulating their physiology, they become more compassionate and you actually influence their very next move without knowing what that move might be, it just makes them want to pay it, pay it forward. Because compassion, wherever you introduce it, explodes in all directions and it it hits everybody. And so these people were came out and they donated. And so to me, um, this idea that I have the ability to write a compassionate song that makes people feel something, that makes them not watch the news maybe for the next five minutes and maybe go out and do something kind to somebody else, that's real power. That's a superpower. And storytelling is the way to do it. You make people feel something more if you're a better craft person with your stories. Mm, that's a beautiful way to look at it. And it's the, our oldest form of communication as humans. So no wonder it's impactful. Mm. But it's also, you know, the way you're changing the world. One song, one project at a time. Now our eyes are leaking. Yeah. You make me think of a, a line from a Joni Mitchell song. Um, that goes, I see something of myself in everyone I meet. Mm. And it seems to me that your message in this 
is so connected to the video you did way back when uh, to try to get a corporation's attention mm -hmm. when they had done you wrong. And that was like the seed of this plant that's grown uncontrollably into this international speaking career and storytelling. Your music is, you know, really making its way around the world, which is awesome. What happened to your guitar <laughs> way back when, Dave? In 2009, I was traveling with Sons of Maxwell and uh, we were going- That's the band with his brother, Don. And by yeah. the way, I love this story. Tell them who Maxwell is. So uh, Max, Carol is our dad, yeah. and uh, no one really calls him Maxwell, but it was cooler than Sons of Max. And yes. uh, so we called our band Sons of Maxwell, but my brother Don and I are the sons of Max Carroll. So we, in 2009, we were traveling with uh, United Airlines and they took our guitars. There was Don and myself and um, uh, John Park Wheeler and Mike Hiltz. And they took our guitars and they put them in the belly of the plane. And it turns out that my $3,500 Taylor guitar was really badly damaged by baggage handlers. And I know what happened in Chicago because a woman looked out the window and said, oh my God, they're throwing guitars outside. <laughs> and uh, it turned out that my $3,500 Taylor guitar was the only one that was damaged and they didn't want to take any responsibility for it. And I just plotted away for about nine months trying to get them to take some kind of responsibility and they didn't. And so finally, a customer service rep named Miss Earlwig from uh, United wrote and broke up with me and she said, Mr. Carroll, uh, we're not responsible for the damage to your, car your guitar because you didn't open a claim within 24 hours. And so I had to do something else. And at that point I said to her in real time, if I were a lawyer, I'd sue you, but I'm not. And I saw a guitar sitting beside me and I said, I've got other tools at my disposal. <laughs> And so I made a promise right there that I would make three songs and videos about this, this experience and post them on this thing called YouTube that I'd heard about. And I would just try and get people to watch it. And I said, I would let her know when, uh, when it was up so we could get to my goal of a million views with all three videos combined. So you had that goal starting out. That's amazing. Yeah. A million seemed like a big number. And yeah. so I said, I'm with all three videos, I'm going to try and get a million views. And uh, But then as soon as I sent the email, I said, why did I say three? That's a ton of work. And how do you write three <laughs> songs about the same thing? And just I got overzealous. Oh, my gosh. So I have to explain, because when you were telling your story and you mentioned the fact that they broke your guitar, I laughed. That might not have seemed like a very <laughs> compassionate reaction, but it's only because... The moment you said it, I see the video, which was so hilarious. Mm. So anyone who, if you haven't seen it, make sure, you know, you watch it immediately after this conversation or pause this and go watch it. And then you'll understand even more because it was done with such a beautiful combination of humor and originality mm -hmm. and creativity. Uh, I'd like to take full credit for it, but I wrote the song nine months after it had happened. So it, it had become a comedy of errors trying to get them to take responsibility. So if it had been the day after, it probably would have different, a different song. Yeah. Probably would have been. But uh, because of, of the way it just unfolded, it was nine months later. And so I took a humorous approach and I imagined all the things that could be funny to put into the song. And that was the, the smartest thing I guess I did is that a screaming, yelling, angry, frothy mouth guy can attract attention for a short time, but no one wants to spend time, too much time with that person. <laughs> no. And coming in with a humorous approach, it attracted people that wanted to be part of it. So I, I relied on my friends who did it for free, Larry Cassidy and Steve Richard at Curve Productions. They are in the film business and they showed up not knowing it. I was asking for free when I asked them, but they found out pretty quick I had no money. So they still showed up and uh, we sh we shot it all the first one in a day and, and it was an amazing opp opportunity. Okay, so just to really blow people's minds, how many views has that first video got now? 
I think it's like 23 million. There are many videos now that have way more than that, but at the time, oh. a million seemed like a big number, and it's it's an honest 23 million. There, you know, there are people that uh, can buy views and yes. they can do all sorts of things and have these strategies. But really, I had no strategy. I just it was like the shampoo commercial where I share it with two friends and so on and so on, and it really went around the world and it really moved organically. And uh, and the interesting thing is that it went in so many different directions. You might have watched it just because you thought it was funny. Somebody else at Harvard teaches it to this day as a case study. And it was a $1,000 question on Jeopardy. And the top <laughs> military generals in the US military studied it. And I don't know why they studied it, but they really? did, yeah. Wow. So that's the thing. And you make reference to this in one of the videos, how they broke your guitar, but they also broke your career yeah. open. Like Who would have ever seen what came next? What happened? For 20 years, I had been just a musician. and. Uh, and so I did just musician things. I would try and play my songs to people who wanted to see it, try and get in radio and that sort of thing. And, and all of a sudden, YouTube presented an opportunity with social media to go right over all of the gatekeepers that hold, especially indie artists back from getting good stages and good access to fans. And we were able to reach uh, the people, anyone who was interested in this story uh, directly and build relationships. And it turned into opportunities to become a speaker which I never did. Uh, Don, my brother, did most of the talking in Sons of Maxwell. And if I had something uh, to say, uh, I could introduce a song. But if I got nervous, I would just start singing. I could just shut it down and start singing. But that's funny because you did a lot of the writing, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I wrote the songs. But uh, in terms of the banter on stage, just speaking mm -hmm. off the top of my head, that's not my forte. And, and somebody asked if I wanted to become a speaker one day, or they thought I already was one. And they said, we'd like you to be our opening speaker in Colorado. 700 of the biggest brands in the world are going to be there. Uh, you don't have to talk very long, just 40 minutes. You do this all the time, right? <laughs> and so I said, yes, of course I do. Yes, of and course. This said, is the right answer. And they said, great. Well, the presentation is next week. Can you come to Colorado Springs? And and uh, I said, sure. And I, uh, they, need my, they needed my PowerPoint presentation. So I said, I'd like to customize that for you. And I got off the phone and I called my father-in-law, Brent, and I said, hey, Brent, uh, what's a PowerPoint presentation? Oh, my Because gosh. musicians never use that. And it was, it was crazy. So there I was the night before my first ever presentation in an empty room with 700 empty seats. Brent walks in, my father-in-law, with the dongle that has my presentation on it. I give it to that guy, he puts it in and hands me the clicker to just run through my slides. And I can't contain myself because I'm impressed with what Brent has done. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, this is incredible. And he, he then knew that I had never spoken before and there was a, a disquiet in the room, right? And yeah. yeah, so I ended up having to stay up late and it was only at like three in the morning when I'm really anxious about having uh, presented myself as a fraud, really, that I said, I'm just here to tell my story. No one in the world knows this story better than me. Just tell it as it happened from the heart. And I had cue cards just in case. So I got through it, but it was a good start to it. Right on. I love that. And I, I think it's amazing that the video, that United Breaks Guitar number one video, was the number one video on YouTube at one point. It was the number one music video in the world for the month of July and the number six most watched video of any kind in, in the world for a month. This podcast is brought to you by Charm Diamond Centers, Canada's largest family-owned jewelry store. They are proud to be putting love on the map. And the staff at Charm Diamond Centers are thrilled to be a part of your love story too. So visit charmdiamondcenters.com or one of your local stores. Love starts here. So no, no wonder you were in demand. How did that 
parlay into a message on stage. So you went and told your story, but it very quickly, like you had, you know, the seeds of, we talk about Tom the tomato plant, but you were planting the seeds of compassion and love messages back then. Right. How did that message sort of come together? Well, when I, when I did my very first talk, I structured it in a way that it, it fundamentally hasn't changed that much. And it was, how did it happen? I broke the story down into small segments of of where I was going, do the setting, explain uh, what it would feel like to have your instrument break and be damaged that way, and then how I responded to it, and then my just my analysis and sharing the, all the crazy things that were going on that you couldn't have expected would happen. So there's the entertainment value, and then I moved to the idea that uh, what's the big insight? And for years it was just we are connected. So mm -hmm. that. I was receiving emails and messages from people from all over the world who couldn't speak English, just trying to say, you know, you're doing something good for customers. I had the same thing. It was a good conversation starter. And I found once again that people all over the world reacted the same way to the same story, which reminded me again that we are all connected. And so what does that mean? And so the way that I presented it, they laughed at the same jokes. It means we all have the same sense of humor. It was really empowering. So it just fueled me to say, okay, well, let's dig deeper into that. And that's where I started thinking more about the reason that it was successful is because it was done compassionately. The lesson going forward is that you don't have to be confrontational right, uh, with that sort of thing. And some people saw it that way. Most people didn't. Most people that hired me actually said, we're going to hire you to, to scare the pants off of everybody, everyone in customer service that you don't, uh, you got to worry about your customers. Oh, really? Yeah. And so I had a different view on it. And so did Wayne Dyer, right? Mm. So he came across, uh, I was a fan of his. I wrote a song called Now. I tried to reach him. He wouldn't respond because he didn't respond to emails from random people saying they that he changed their life. And uh, I there said, were a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. many, many. <laughs> and so I was reading his his latest book at the time, Excuses Be Gone, and he had a, a shout out to his daughter's handbag business called Urban Junket, and she was in San Diego. And so I said, everybody who starts a business will respond to everybody. So I reached out to her and just said, I wrote the song called Now. Can you send it to your dad with my gratitude? And I also did this thing called United Breaks Guitars. And she's like, wow, United Breaks Guitars. I live in San Diego. I love that song. And my dad's going to come here from Hawaii in a couple of weeks. And so I'm going to share your song now with him and I'll let you know what he says. And you must have been vibrating that day. I was losing my mind yeah. like because it was just happening so easily, yeah. right? Yeah. Sometimes the universe just opens up for you. Mm -hmm. And and here it's like, I'd like to contact Wayne Dyer. So I send one email and it's like, okay. And so two weeks later, uh, true to her word, she responded, but had nothing to say about my song now. It was just, my dad is a, now a fan of United Breaks Guitars. Oh. And he sees this as a story of non-confrontation and you should write a book about it. And if you should contact Reed Tracy, the publisher at Hay House next week at this time. And so I did. And by the end of the phone call, I had a commitment for a book deal to write that story, uh, provided I could write a sample chapter in a chapter outline. And uh, that was enough. And the rest was history. And I actually went on tour with Wayne Dyer for several shows and, and got to hang out with some really interesting Hay House writers. Isn't that funny? We have that in common. We've both been on tour with Wayne Dyer, but I wasn't singing. I was just <laughs> introducing him. But I, I did have dinner with him for two nights in Maui and found that he was the real deal. Like, yeah. what, a, what an amazing human. Um, and I love that he loved your song so much. Mm -hmm. I also put your song in my book just a little blurb about it because I introduced it to my friend who was dying. Mm -hmm. And she, the moment she heard it, she said, oh, I want that at my celebration of life. There's no question. That's got to be played. Yeah. 
And of course, it was my son who played it. He was a friend of hers as well. Mm -hmm. And he played it as we all walked in. So that song has really uh, carried a message of love and compassion around the world. Do you want to do you want to tell us just a little bit more about it? Like give us some of the lyrics or, you know, sing it if you feel like it. <laughs> now is, is a song that I wrote when I read Wayne Dyer's book, The Power of Intention. And this is a great story for full circle, the way life comes full circle. Mm -hmm. So I was a, I had been a lover of Wayne Dyer and those type of books. And I remember reading them and thinking, wouldn't it be nice to write a book like that? But what would I ever write about? So there's that. Yeah. And then, so then I write this, uh, I read The Power of Intention. I really liked it. It led me to a book called The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. And uh, after the, that book, I thought, uh, I'm going to try and write a song about it. But that song, I, I sometimes wonder uh, if it's all for, part of a plan that uh, United Breaks Guitars is the, it opens the doors, but that song has found uh, listeners that find it extremely meaningful because of United Breaks Guitars. Mm -hmm. uh, a woman in California at, chose to uh, put it on uh, and close her eyes with her daughter. And when the song was over, she was gone. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like a plan to die to it, but she uh, she just put it on when she kind of knew she was dying. The beautiful lines that uh, resonate with so many people are, when there's no way out, there's still a way through. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, powerful messages and and. Uh, Eckhart Tolle's words, as you know, every 10 pages, that's probably enough for a day mm -hmm. because there's so many epiphanies in there and, and uh, aha moments. But uh, yeah, the song is really just about living in the present moment. And what inspired me to write the song, one part of the book said that if you're living in the past, uh, worrying about things that have happened or you're worried about things that haven't happened yet, you're technically insane. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought that's true, you know, because this is the only moment we have. So if you're living in another space other than the one you have, I guess you're technically insane. And so the song is meant to be just a calming reminder to to be present. And and it just actually fell out of me. Like, I'd like to say that I really crafted it, but it just kind of fell out in about a half an hour. Yeah. And that's how you know that maybe you're inspired. Yeah. It, you say we're all connected, but that's a sign for me that we're connected into something bigger than us. Mm -hmm. And it so it goes through you rather than from you sometimes. Yeah. Um, I have a, a jacket that uh, on the back of it, it was a gift. It says, when you put love into the world, it travels. And that is what comes to mind right now with both uh, that song now, mm -hmm. but all of your projects, you know, the way they just kind of explode. You, I think you're about to release a beautiful song that you first sang for me and a group of friends, mm -hmm. uh, gosh, before the pandemic. Right. And it's called The Giant. Yep. That song I wrote for my kids again. Uh, they, Like I said earlier, uh, my family inspires a lot of material, but every every parent encounters points, I think, when their kids are, are beating themselves up. They don't have that first L, the love, love and respect of themselves and... and uh, it's just something minor. I think my son was just saying, I'll never get this right or something along those lines. And it occurred to me that maybe one of the biggest gifts as a dad, when I became a dad, I said, my my responsibility is to make sure they know they're unconditionally loved. Mm -hmm. And that's great. But I, I became a dad at 40. So if things go as they're supposed to, there will be a big chunk of his life where I'm not around. And if he only has two people that he feels his mom and dad love them unconditionally, then there could be a point where he might not feel loved. And I thought, well, there must be a better way. And the simple answer was to teach him to love himself so that no matter where he goes, he's always got someone in the room who loves him, right? And so that's kind of my goal with the song. So the song looks at uh, growing up and, and maybe getting to the point where you're self-actualized and uh, 
If you're lucky, maybe at some point in your life, you see a giant in you. And if you're lucky, you're still in the second verse, uh, you get to know the giant within you. And then ultimately the big goal is to get to the point where you, you not only know the giant, but you know the giant is and always was you. One day you will realize the impact that you've made When you look behind and see the giant footprints that remain And you'll love the one you've always been without being afraid And I'll know my work is through When you see the giant in It's really, so the first time I heard it, I remember how it impacted me. And this time I realized that's basically what I took a whole book to say. <laughs> <laughs> you just you just did it in a beautiful way with music and you needed f fewer words by far. But it is, it's such an important message, especially at a time when our world feels like it's moving into this me focus rather than we focus. Yeah. 100%. When it comes time to, to editing, that's what I think the strength of a songwriter is, is that they only usually have like 30 lines to say what they want to say. So at home, Jill has done this to me, my wife, but I've shrunk a few of her clothes in the laundry and she's had nice sweaters that come out looking exactly like they did, just way smaller, right? <laughs> and so my, my idea on editing is that you, you should be able to shrink what you want to say and make it look exactly like you wanted, just smaller. Okay. And... Uh, that's, that's my approach to, I think, as I'm getting older, I'm becoming more economical in uh, what I say. So there's such a, a theme or a thread that runs through your work. What is ahead for you? What is, I know you're focused on the now, but when you think about what you want to accomplish in the future, what is it? I still want to be productive and creatively, like creating new things. Could be stories like Tom's Tomato Plant or, or music. I just put out a new CD this year that includes that song, The Giant, but it has some of my best music on there. And, and we're going through a strange time in the music business where it's really not an industry anymore in many ways. It's, mm -hmm. it's a great hobby, but there's not a lot of people making like a living wage on it without government support or that sort of thing. But it doesn't mean that there's no value in in the creation process. So I still want to continue to create because it makes me feel good to write the songs. And there are still people that want to hear them. And so that's that's definitely it. And I'm also getting into cinephotography and photography now with the idea that you have to be more creative. So I'm going to be able to do all the things myself so that the, the video for The Giant was done at my house with my lighting and my camera stuff. And and I, I'm taking a course with Steve Richard, who shot the United videos. Oh, great. So I'm learning from him on how to create content and, and make it cinematic so that it looks more than just your iPhone on a tripod and and uh, inspires people. Yeah, I want to inspire people with the idea that as a songwriter, I know that I, that we are all connected and and I have I have the power to write an angry song and and to be pissed off and tell everybody how pissed off I am and bring people into that energy. But I also know that I have the power to be lighter than that. Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm consciously trying to avoid the angry stuff and bring common sense to the world, right? you know, chain people to the center a little bit. You don't have to agree with everybody, but you can't hear the people on the other side if you're not near the center. So that's where I try to live. It's a feeling of um, being responsible for the energy that you bring into the world as well. Yeah. You said that there is going to be a day when your 
kids don't have you and your wife around anymore, when that time comes, what do you hope that they as young men or old men, hopefully, mm -hmm. will say about who their dad was? I hope that, number one, they, they knew they were unconditionally loved, that uh, they were enough. Yeah, that's probably enough. Okay, now we're both crying. It's time to wrap it up. You. <laughs> you. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's beautiful to think about uh, the legacy you're leaving for them. Thank you. All right, we're, not, we're done. He's not talking to me anymore, Sarah. Thanks so much for listening to the Canadian Love Map. If you love us, please subscribe and share. And if you want to help us spread the love even more, rate and review our podcast. We'll be back next week with another love story to add to the map. This podcast is presented and made possible by Charm Diamond Centers. It's hosted by me, Nancy Regan, and is produced and distributed by Podstarter. This has been a Podstarter production. Podstarter.